love God's presence. Amen. It's transformative. God's presence plus the word equals a changed life every time. And so we're going to dig in today to God's word. Um, you guys remember last week Eric shared on uh, chapter 9 and 10. And so um, today I'm going to, as he shared, I'm going to talk about Romans 11. Um, does anyone remember what Eric's big idea was last week? Just raise your hand if you remember. Three, three of you did. Awesome. Yeah, CPR, right? Bringing spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Who remembers what CPR stands for? C stands for what? Care. That's right. P stands for what? Prayer. And R stands for? Respond. Absolutely. If we're going to be faithful to the command to evangelize, then CPR helps us carry that out. But first, we have to care about others, right? We got to care that people are not going to be in heaven. If we're going to share the gospel, we've got to feel something for the lost. And then it's if we can feel something for them, then we can actually begin to effectively pray for something. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, heartless prayers don't feel fun. You know, you're just going through the list. God bless this one. God bless that one. Help that one. Dear Lord, help that one. But when we care and our heart's connected to the object of, of our prayer, something happens. God can move on their hearts because we asked him to. We said, God, go get them. And then we've got to respond, right? We've got to go out to where they are. And then we have to faithfully share the gospel with them. That's CPR. That's what Eric shared last week. So today, I'm going to just kind of piggyback on some of what he spoke about and share a couple of ideas um, when it comes to overcoming obstacles to evangelism. And I believe Paul talks about these two obstacles here in Romans 11 um, that we, we need to, to be aware of so that we can overcome. And the first one is that we've got to restore our reputation as Christians. And I'm just going to throw these out here right off the bat. doesn't mean you get to leave early. You have to stay for the whole message. <laughs> but we've got to first, one of the problems I think Paul addresses is that we've got to restore our reputation as Christians, right? As followers of Christ. And then secondly, we have to learn how to be patient or wait for those who are slow to responding to the gospel. So let's start with this issue of restoring our reputation. Now, kind of, you know, the first part of, of chapter 11, Paul starts out with a question and about um, God's relationship to his chosen people, the Jews, right? And he asks this question, he says, has God rejected the Jews? He asks this question because Gentiles were getting saved. And now the Gentiles were starting to receive God's blessing because they were accepting Jesus as their Savior. It like left the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jewish people, and it started to show up on these dogs, which is how the Jews thought about the Gentiles. They're dogs, they're swine. You're not God's people, we are. 
But Paul says, no, no, God hasn't left the Jews. They are still God's chosen people. And he reinforces this idea by saying that God always has a remnant of people that is chosen by grace. And then Paul does this this great thing. He he points to some spiritual basis for this by using the story of Elijah, right? And and Elijah, after he had confronted the prophets of Baal, and and now Jezebel's like, I'm going to kill you. And now he's depressed, and he's worn out, and he's burned out, and he gave and gave and gave. And now he's like at the end of his rope, and he's fearing for his life. And he cries out to God, I'm all alone. There's no other Christians in the world but me. I mean, back then it was, you know, there are no faithful. But God says, no, that's not true. There's a remnant of 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Don't you worry. I got you. I got this covered. But Paul says, presently, there's also a remnant chosen by grace who are Jews who have accepted Jesus. They're saved by his name. And not only was there a remnant of Jews who believed, but he's also, we've got the Gentiles who are starting to flood in to the church. And they were believing too. And this was causing a serious problem specifically for the unbelieving Jewish people. So now we're in Romans 11. Let's start in verse 11. It says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they may, might fall? By no means. Rather, through their tras- trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Guess what? That's everyone in this room. Inasmuch as then I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and therefore save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, we're that world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, it's important to remember that God... God is so big. He is so awesome. He is so omni-everything, omni-omni, that God can even use human sinfulness to serve his purposes. Okay? Now, I'm not giving you a license to, like, let's see how God can use this then. I can't wait. Right? Don't go sin and see how God make a beautiful thing out of it. We just, it happens automatically. We're already sinning and messing up enough. But God is so big, he can even use sinfulness to to his purposes. In fact, back in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, Paul reminds them that during the time of the Exodus, that God actually used Moses to spread his reputation throughout the ancient world. And here in Paul's day, God is now using the Jewish hostility to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. The rejection of Jesus by so many in Judaism had forced the believing Jews, the Christian Jews, to cease preaching in the synagogues. 
because that was what they did. And not only were some of them, they're like, I'm not preaching in the synagogue anymore because I, I mean, I might die if I go in there and talk about Jesus. It was that bad. And so now we've got some Jewish Christians who are running for their lives. And so the focus of their evangelistic effort was now turned to the Gentiles. And you can actually read about that whole shift that happened in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 4 through 11. Go back and read, and you watch what happens as they were in the synagogue, and then they're like, well, it's time. We're, we're going to take this message to the Gentiles. In fact, this shift to the Gentiles had actually um, already um, brought in thousands of new believers, thousands of Gentile believers. And the presence of the Holy Spirit had, was transforming these Gentile you know, pagan Gentile people. He was transforming their lifestyles. And so the Jewish, their Jewish neighbors and friends, they couldn't help but like see a difference, right? Have you ever seen someone turn? Like when they got saved, it was from dark to light. And you're like, there is something different. So Paul, he was very passionately, he had hoped that seeing, that seeing the impact of salvation on the Gentiles would help to provoke the Jews so that they would become jealous and want what they had. And in time, as they would turn, they would get the same blessing. They would long to possess the righteousness that comes through faith. And so Paul understood that the emphasis, the shift of the emphasis toward the Gentiles, he knew this was a strategic move on God's part and which would result in many more Jews coming to Jesus in the long run. That's what he's talking about here. Now, it does not mean that Paul thought God wanted to save Jews more than Gentiles, right? He's not like, oh, you guys got saved so that the righteous people, the, the people of God can get it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get a few of you saved, and, but the really important people to get saved are the Jews. That's not what he's saying. He wasn't saying that. He's showing us that God was at work making something good out of a very bad situation, out of the hostility. And, he's, and God was, because God is directing this Jewish hostility so that it would not end up in defeat, but it would end up in the salvation of more Gentiles and more Jews. In fact, this is what Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He says, they, of the Lord, they have made me jealous for what is no God, and they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people, and I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Moses said, that someday God would use Gentiles to make Israel great. And when those who initially rejected the gospel saw the Holy Spirit resting mightily on their Gentile neighbors, that they would be forced to ask whether or not they had been mistaken in their rejection of Jesus. In other words, God had a plan to reach their hearts by another way. He hadn't given up. He just changed the tactic. He was going to do it. Now, 
think it would be really easy for us to focus on the Jewish hostility and see how God used it to help reach the Gentiles. But I think the real issue I want to look at and talk about is the cultural prejudice of the early church. You know, it's worth asking, why did God need to use violent persecution to drive evangelism out to the Gentiles? Well, the answer is to help them realize that something was terribly wrong. Something wasn't working. Now, after all, if we go back to the words of Jesus, what he said to his followers, it was very clear. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He said in Acts, he said, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, the motherland, Judea, yes, and Samaria, (laughs) even to the remotest parts of the earth. These are the words of Christ over and over and over to his Jewish first century church. And so the thing that was terribly wrong, the thing that wasn't working was initially these commands were ignored by the early church. Even after all that Jesus had said to them, there was a ton of resistance to seeing Gentiles get saved. Some of the leaders actually weren't even pleased to hear that the Gentiles were getting saved. And so they needed to be convinced that God even wanted these people in the kingdom. Right? I mean, the story of Cornelius in Acts. It says, and the voice came, this is speaking to Peter, about Peter. It says, and the voice came to him again a second time. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Peter had to say the same vision three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And then we jump down to verse 19. It says, and so, so a guy comes to get Peter takes him to this Gentile's house named Cornelius. And so Peter's like, okay, what's going on? I don't know. I guess I'll tell you the gospel. And he tells them, and he can't even finish his sermonette. And it says, while Peter was pondering the vision, well, we're not there yet, I'm sorry. Peter was pondering the vision. The Spirit said, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and, and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. So he had to have a word, three visions and a word just to go talk to some Gentiles. That's a problem. Peter literally had to have a vision from God to believe that Cornelius and his household should hear the gospel and be saved. So then we get to Acts 11, and Peter is in trouble because he's been hanging out and eating with Gentiles. And so once again, Peter has to explain this whole process of how he saw this vision from God and how when he shared the gospel with Cornelius and his family, the spirit fell and his whole household got saved. And so Peter has to to convince his fellow Jewish Christian brothers that, yeah, Gentiles can get saved too. Who would have known? Who would have thunk it? And so then in, in Acts 11, 19 through 26, we, we read again that, 
the church starts to get scattered because of the persecution concerning Stephen. So we have to we have to look at this series of events and realize that God allowed and even acted to produce the hostility. Why? Because his church was so prejudiced against all who were not Jews that they refused to go into all the world. The strategy that God was forced to use here, it's a sad statement. Not only on the condition of Judaism, but on the early church. God was having to turn their hearts and lead them with a bridle, like a horse or a mule. Now, I think we all really understand that the issue of cultural prejudice is a universal human sin. It affects every heart. It's not just a Western problem. It's not an American problem. In fact, just travel to any third world nation that has, still has a caste system, and you will see the true meaning of cultural prejudice the reality is is that none of us escape this temptation yes some cultures give greater expression to it than others but anywhere you go in the world people tend to care more about people who are like themselves and hate or at least not care that much for people who are different I think most of us would agree that people believe the more you are like me, the more human you are. And so this problem, I think it takes, again, two forms. It comes in the form of cultural prejudice, which says I deeply dislike certain groups of people. And then cultural blindness that says I don't even notice certain groups of people. They may be there, but I am completely disinterested in them. These attitudes become profound boundaries, walls to the gospel. They set up walls that keep the gospel from moving forward. You know, we tend to tell people who are like us about Jesus, and we tend to ignore people who are different. Somehow we don't think about them like they're our responsibility. Back to Romans 11, Paul says, you know, he knew that the Jews who had followed Judaism would need more than words. They would need to see life transformation to convince them that the gospel that comes through Jesus, that it's true. Some of the things that would move them to jealousy would be things like seeing the gifts working on through the people, seeing things like the joy of the Lord, the great love that was being cultivated among the, the believers for one another, and a burning faith that people are now willing to die for because Jesus was Lord. So Paul had hoped that 
his unbelieving Jewish brothers and sisters would see the Gentiles who had one time were living these wild lives, and now they had become morally pure. They worshipped God now. Paul hoped that that would make a powerful statement about the validity of the gospel. That was his hope. How did that work? Well, it may have worked at some level during Paul's years, but very quickly, walls of prejudice have gone up again. You know, Paul said that there has always been a remnant of faithful Christians in every generation since uh, the church was founded. But the sad truth is that so many terrible things have been done by people who called themselves Christians. And unfortunately, we inherit some of that legacy. We've inherited some of that prejudice and violence. For instance, when it comes to like violence against Jews and Muslims, there were the Crusades, the Holocaust. Now, you may say, well, wait a second, Tom. Christians didn't start the Holocaust. Nazis did. True. But you may not know is that in Germany, when the Nazi party was coming into power and bringing forth this message, the entire church of Germany, the Christian church of Germany, were in saying, this is right, this is good. Not the extermination, you know, the wording never got to that point. But this is, you know, Germany first, and we've got a, a, a church. There was just a handful of theo Christian theologians and leaders who resisted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them. He resisted this, and he was one of the sole voices that said, this is wrong what we're doing to the Jews, and he died for it. So, under the name of Christianity in Germany, Nazism was promoted. Of course, the Crusades was an all-out war against Muslims, and really anyone. You will become a Christian by force of death. I also know here in America, the Native Americans have suffered broken treaties, deculturalization schools, mass murder, trail of tears. Probably worst of all is the slavery in our nation. Where there were sermons preached in churches supporting slavery. Encouraging slaves to stay under the heavy hand of their masters. There were segregated churches. You go to church there, we go to church here. That history makes it hard to share Jesus sometimes. Sometimes the mention of Jesus' name just raises horrible memories for some people. And this, of course, is the plan of Satan. This is his goal. It's to build walls. It's to discredit the gospel so people will reject the one who came to save them because of his people. Those rotten Christians. Those terrible people. That's his plan. 
In some ways, our, our reputation's damaged. But you and I, we've got to determine to repair that reputation. Listen, we have no control over anyone beyond ourselves and our congregation. But our obedience, however small, when compared to the big picture, our obedience, it will make a difference. So how can we begin to make our difference and begin to repair our reputation? I think the church needs a gospel that actually changes the way people behave. Let's just start with simple stuff. We've got to abandon a social gospel. We've got to forsake only being Christian by title and start living like Christ with each other. Start living like Christ in the world, at work, and at school. We've got to start serving better. Get back to our ministry of washing feet. Demonstrating the love of God. Not just telling people, hey, you know God loves you? Yeah, I think I heard that. I saw it on a bumper sticker on my way to Rural King. I heard it. Yep, thanks. Demonstrate the love of God. We talk too much and we do too little. We need to open our eyes to see people like God sees people. We need to open our hearts and welcome everyone. Now that doesn't mean that there's, there isn't a moral standard which must be met by anyone who claims to be a Christian, but our hearts have to be open to everyone. And I realize that in this room, there's probably not many racist people. But I tell you, a culture that we do abhor and we do avoid, LGBTQ, they're the new pariahs of our society. We're scared. We don't understand it. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to relate. We don't know how to be friends. Every one of us has to have personal responsibility when it comes to repairing our reputation. This isn't my job only. You, you stand up there, Tom, and, and you show us what good Christianity looks like, and I'm going to do my thing whenever I feel like it. Everyone in this room has to choose to represent Christ in the very best way that you have grace to do it with. We've got to decide to obey Jesus' commands. We can either be a part of the answer or not. You and I have to decide to obey the commands of Christ. And if we're going to repair our reputation, if we're going to be a part of the answer, then we have to have God free us from our cultural prejudice and our cultural blindness. We need to ask Him to open our spiritual eyes so that we can see people instead of categories. Colossians 3 says, Here, here there's no Jew or Greek circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all, is all and in all. 
We have to see people as relatives, not races. Right? Acts 17 says, and he made from one man, Adam, one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for dwelling places. We have to see people as brothers and sisters in the Lord. First Corinthians says that for one in spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And all are made to drink of one spirit. And then Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. We've got to see the multitude, that these people are the potential multitude of heaven. Revelation 5.9 says, They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals? For you were slain, and you, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. How deeply God loves them. We've got to see how deeply God loves these people. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. got to live in such a way to make people jealous. I want what you have. Make them jealous to want and know our Savior like we know him. So here's a question or two I want you to ask yourself. How does God want you to improve the reputation of the church and the gospel? What people groups have you ignored or disliked and therefore counted unworthy of hearing the gospel? So this is the first obstacle I think Paul's talking about here when it comes to evangelism. Now let's, I want to look at the other obstacle, the, the discouragement that comes As I shared earlier, the second obstacle can be waiting for slow people to respond to the gospel. In Romans eleven sixteen it says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others. And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jews are the original branches that were in this root that is God. But they rejected now Jesus. And so he's saying they got broken off. And then wild roots, the wild branches, which are the Gentiles, you got grafted in. He says, now don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast because of faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 
Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? That's a whole lot of imagery. But the olive tree is, has always been symbolic of the nation of Israel. That God is the root. I realize it's easy to give up. We may start with high hopes that a family member or friend would soon receive Jesus. But as time passes, those expectations, they weaken. and Sometimes they die completely. Right? We've prayed and we've tried to share our faith, but all of our attempts have been rebuffed repeatedly. Fact is that some people are really, really, really slow. Slow to believe. In fact, sometimes they seem like they're actually determined to refuse the gospel. Maybe even get defensive or angry every time you slightly mention Jesus. Pastor shared that last week about his mother-in-law. And that's when the danger can arise for us. Because we too, when we get that defensive, angry thing come at us, guess what, guess what we do? We get defensive and angry. The best way we fix that is we stop caring. I don't care. I don't care anymore. And the real serious problem that's right on the hills of that is that our attitude can get worse and we start to think that God doesn't care about them anymore. I mean, after all, that person is, they've been given more than their fair share of opportunities. If they don't want to go to heaven, so be it, right? They've made their choice. It's now time for me and God to move on. Well, this is the problem Paul's trying to prevent in this passage. See, Gentile believers in Rome were growing proud, and they were starting to look down on the Jews for refusing the gospel. And so Paul is concerned that they're beginning to think that God is just as frustrated as you are. Somehow God has stopped loving the Jews, that he's abandoned his covenant, that he swore he would never break. And so Paul's solution to this problem is remarkable. He unveils a mystery. He shows us what's happening from God's perspective. He's, he's sharing that it's actually a divine plan designed to bring in more Gentiles and to bring in the Jews. And that God is far from giving up and is still mightily at work. 
Paul's basic message is this. Please don't stop loving them. No matter how hard some of them look and appear to you, God is still able to turn a person's heart into a yes. Let me explain a little more. In Romans eleven sixteen, he said, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul said that because he wants his readers to keep in mind that in, in spite of their response to the gospel, Jews still have a special place in God's heart. They still receive special treatment because of God's covenant with them through Abraham. And that those individuals who refuse to believe the gospel are not saved. No, they're not. But they are still loved. And God is going to continue to reach out to them. And that is because all future generations of his children were present within Abraham when God made his covenant with Abraham. When God said to Abraham, I will bless you. He meant he would not only bless Abraham, but he is going to bless every generation that comes after him. And so for Paul to illustrate this, he reminds us, he says, remember the, the first fruits. The first fruits offering is when the first loaf of bread from the new harvest was made and it was thankfully offered to God. Another way of illustrating the same truth was the olive tree, which is the biblical symbol of Israel. And Abraham and Sarah were, uh, are the root of this family tree. And so all who are descended from them are included in their promises according to how they live them out in their own lives. Verse 17, he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. God's commitment to bless Abraham's descendants, it remains unchanged. The arrival of the gospel had left those who rejected it in a worse spiritual condition than they were even before. Paul makes it plain in Romans chapter 10 verses 18 through 21, that most Jews in his day had heard and fully understood what they were saying in the gospel. And by their choice, they were deliberately rejecting Jesus. And when they made that deliberate choice to reject Jesus, they had crossed a threshold and they had placed themselves under divine judgment. Up to that moment, they had been uh, unaware they were maybe misinformed about him. But when they started presenting the, the, the gospel, the true full gospel, and then they deliberately refused what they understood, a line was crossed. And their claim to Abraham's blessing ended. At least until they repented. They were like fruitless branches. They were now broken off from God's olive tree. Because they rejected Jesus. Verse 18 says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. See, by the time Paul wrote this letter, far more Gentiles than Jews were believing the gospel. 
And so he's warning his Gentile readers not to develop this attitude of superiority. Yes, the Gentiles were proving to be far more responsive than the Jews. But it had been through the faithfulness of generations of Jews over the course of almost 2,000 years that made it possible for this promise to reach down to that present generation. It was through Judaism that God's Savior came into the world. So the only correct response that he's saying is thankfulness. That's it. It's all you get to say. Thank you, not pride. So Paul is revealing some amazing truths right here. But his real purpose behind this passage, it's pastoral. He's pleading with Gentiles not to stop believing. Please don't stop hoping. Please don't stop loving my own people, Paul says. Who Paul admitted, I'm frustrated too. I am frustrated that they are so slow to receive the one who's been prophesied to us for thousands of years. And if we listen closely to what Paul tells them, we find he's teaching us too how to wait. Wait for someone that may take a lifetime. I mean, let's listen to this passage again with that in mind. Verse 16 says that we should be remembering God's promises. That's what it's telling us. Did God give us a promise for that person a long time ago? Are there promises in the Bible that apply to my situation that I can stand on in faith? Verse 18, I think, tells us to remember the blessings that I've received from this unsaved person, maybe. Because we're talking about someone waiting for a lifetime. You've, that's a relationship you've got. Over the years, I've noticed that I've received some gifts of insight or benefit from almost every person I've known. Even those whose the relationship ended badly. Something they said or they modeled has become a part of my own thinking. It's made me a better person, <laughs> learned to love better. When it comes to family, I think, or close friends, I think this is really actually true. So if I just focus on the negatives, that's all I'm going to see. But if I choose to be at least fair, I have to admit there's been something really positive that's come from them in my direction. I think verse 19 tells us to resist the temptation to feel that superiority. All right? Let's remember, I'm not a believer because I'm a better person. In fact, I've probably been worse than some of the people we're trying to win to Jesus. I'm saved by grace and grace alone. The only difference between me and anyone else is I, I repented. I just trusted. And God forgave me. Religious pride is a poisonous temptation. 
And I can either find myself relating to others from a position of moral superiority where I can be humble and realize, oh, I needed this message one day and I got it, thank God. You know, when we, when we live on our high horse or our ivory tower, that gets tiresome for others who live or work or go to school with us. They don't care about that. I think verse 20 tells us to remember I didn't earn or deserve anything. I'm still no better than they are. The only difference is I stand only by my faith. That's it. I think verse 21 tells me to, I should focus on me. What I need to give my attention to is keeping my own faith intact. Modeling Christ's love, not criticizing their lack of faith. I think verse 22 says it's healthy to keep God's justice in mind. You know, each of us must walk in faith for a lifetime. And that's what Paul means when he says in Philippians 2, verse 12, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean to earn it. It's not what he's saying. He means don't get complacent. Nurture and guard your faith and keep it strong so that you end well. I think verse 23 says, don't lose hope. They still may repent. They're not dead. God hasn't given up. Why are you? So don't. Don't give up. I think verse 24 says, there's a calling and a purpose still waiting for that person as soon as they turn to Jesus. There is divine destiny on the people we are encountering. We have to remember that when we handle them with the gospel. And I think verse 25 says, beware of analyzing the situation, you know, trying to figure it all out. Well, this is why they haven't got Jesus yet. I figured it out. So as soon as they break up with that person, they'll finally be able to get saved. Because they're such a bad influence, right? Now, there's a divine plan at work, which I may never discover using my own powers of human reasoning. God may or may not choose to reveal his plan to me. If he does, it'll be for one reason only, to encourage me to keep believing, to keep hoping, to keep loving. But my big brain... It's no match for God's amazing wisdom. So let's talk about some practicals. Again, remember what the P stands for CPR? Prayer, right? So here's some tips. When you pray for the lost, keep your prayer simple. You might want to take a picture of this. Long, wordy intercessions and emotional spiritual warfare, it is going to wear you out. Just mention their name regularly. Give thanks to God that God is faithfully at work. 
and, and then decide to keep praying for as long as you're alive or they're alive. Next, keep believing. Remember, God's promise, when he doubts, when, when doubts come to you, we've got to remember his promises. Don't try to arm wrestle with doubt. Don't. Just run to the promises. Just go there. Get in God's word. Get in God's spirit. Wrap yourself in that thing. Next, keep your own spiritual life healthy. We've got to decide to never stop growing spiritually. And I realize sometimes uh, when we're believing for 